Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Viral, a podcast series looking at the spread of COVID-19 as it continues to affect Ireland and the international world in a growing capacity. Today on the podcast, we look at the need to reimagine our urban areas and the health vulnerabilities of Ireland's essential workers. This isn't going away. Um, it hasn't gone away. We've seen what will happen by looking at what's happened in other countries if we relax. Ironically, the lower the numbers get, um, the more we need to work at this to keep keep them there, keep them suppressed. Don't let this get back into our communities. Um, so, so yes, there's a role for doubling down, but for everybody. Um, it's not for the government or the health service or for, for us here as individuals. It's for the entire population. That was Acting Chief Medical Officer Roland Glynn speaking at the Department of Health press conference in Bagot Street, Dublin on Thursday night as the country saw its largest spike in cases for a number of weeks as new larger clusters developed in settings countrywide. Of the cases reported today, at least 18 are associated with a cluster in a factory in Kildare. This factory has been closed since last Friday and an outbreak control team is in place. This outbreak has now also been associated with clusters in direct provision centres. Once again, outbreak control teams are in place and measures to interrupt further transmission have been instigated. A small number of further cases today are associated with the construction industry. And there are also at least four clusters today associated with private households and extended families. Undoubtedly a worrying trend, all eyes and ears will be on Friday evening's conference to see whether cases continue to rise in this fashion or whether this was a once-off spike. Ireland, of course, is not the only country in Europe to have seen surges in this fashion, as just last month in Germany we saw a meat processing plant where over 1,300 workers contracted the virus in a short amount of time. On today's podcast, we look at why some sectors and professions not only are more inclined to possibly catch the virus, but also likely to be more vulnerable to the worst outcomes of COVID if infected. Dr. Brendan Walsh is a research officer in the Social Research Division of the ESRI and authored a report looking at how some essential workers are particularly vulnerable to COVID-19, using labour force survey data to see where people living with chronic conditions are most likely to work. First though, it is unarguable to say that this pandemic has changed all facets of life for us and with a large amount of negative also has to come some sparks of positivity as the country learns to adapt in different ways. By taking a stroll through any urban area in the country you will notice many differences of late. Congestion has lessened, direly needed infrastructure such as bike lanes or public toilets have been erected and weather permitting you might even notice some people dining outside. Ralph Regal is the Irish Independent Southern correspondent and spoke to me about how COVID-19 has sped up the transformation of some city centres around Ireland by as much as a decade. 
we've heard a lot of discussion around cities having to reimagine their urban areas to become a little bit more COVID functional. What does that actually look like, though, in the earliest stages of development? And where have we seen these changes made? Well, I think the, the major impact is the fact that some of these changes were already in the pipeline. And what the COVID-19 pandemic has done and the various demands around social distancing and enhanced, you know, sanitization measures and stuff, what it's done is it's, it's fast-tracked it. Now, some people are saying that really what it's done, it's, it's going to accelerate by around 10 years the emergence of these, you know, future-proof cities. So I think if you're talking about Limerick, Cork, you know, Galway, Waterford, Dublin, what you're going to see is much more pedestrianization a much greater use of streetscapes. So, for instance, you'll see a lot more al fresco or open-air dining, Mm. a greater use of street furniture, a much greater emphasis on health and welfare. For instance, major promotion of cycling, not just as a way of reducing congestion within urban centres, but also to promote health and well-being. And you're also going to see an enormous um, focus on public transport Mm. within urban areas so that if people are to move within cities the desire is that they do it either by foot by bike or by public transport al fresco dining obviously sounds like a delightful way to spend the latter half of the summer but has there been any thought into how we can maybe winter proof some of these initiatives as well obviously ireland is very weather dependent yeah, very much so. I mean, there's been some very famous um, images taken of, say, Princess Street in, in Cork City. It, it's it's a lovely street. It links um, Oliver Plunkett Street and the, the South Mall and Patrick Street within Cork. And it's the focus of a number of restaurants and bars. And what has happened is that they've made use of, effectively, they've shut the street down in the evening time so and put tables on footpaths and, and roadways so that people can eat, they can have a few drinks and socialise. And thanks to the good weather, it really has given a European feel Mm. to that whole part of the city. But obviously, Ireland is not the south of France and it's not Italy and Spain. And weather is a big issue. So if you take that one particular example, one suggestion is that they might develop some type of covering for the street so that in inclement weather, diners or people that are out socialising, they would have some form of protection from the elements. But again, that, that was raised during the week with Cork City Council as part of this, you know, reimagining the city centre. But there are a lot of issues involved in it, but not only health and safety, but planning and also, um, you know, in terms of you can't prioritise you know, traders in one mm. particular part of the city and give them some kind of an advantage over traders in another part of the city. But that's certainly one of the things that's being looked at. The high street is obviously a hugely focal point of any big urban area. And retail was obviously as well hugely impacted at the beginning of the pandemic as non-essential businesses faced lengthy closures. Is there any indication on how the comeback has been since reopening? There has been a bit of a comeback, but I think it has not been to the degree that some would have hoped for. You'll certainly see some shops that have done very well on the high street. You'll see others that have struggled. Um, Some restaurants, again, have done very well. Others, really, they were hoping for things to be a little bit better. I think the major challenge going forward is how to foster the recovery while managing things like social distancing and sanitization and, you know, health and safety elements. I mean, controlling numbers within shops inevitably has acted as a bit of a break 
on trade levels. And the whole thing about the kind of the accidental shopper or the impromptu shopper, that's been hit because anyone who decides the spur of the moment thinks, look, I might buy a pair of shoes, and they see eight or ten people queuing out of a shoe store, the chances are they may or may not join the queue, they may walk on. I think what's what's going to happen going forward until we see a vaccine, um, you're going to see thinking outside the box in, in, in ways to adapt to the social distancing challenges. You might see longer opening hours. You might see things like, you know, booking um, times. You might see certain periods of the day where older people, it's a special designated time for maybe older people to go shopping. Um, you might see designated areas of stores. But I think it's going to be very challenging. I, I mean, certainly, if you look at the high street in Ireland, it really has suffered body blows in terms of the loss of, mm. of very high-profile outlets such as Debenhams. And it's not just the high street because, say, Debenhams would have been anchor tenants in an awful lot of shopping centres as well. So they're suddenly finding themselves having to adapt and think about what, what shape and form the future is going to take. Lockdown obviously afforded us an opportunity to see whether it's possible to live a slower and more sustainable life in many ways. How important is this then within the future-proofing plans? Was this at the heart of it to live in a greener and more sustainable city? I think it's shown what can be achieved. I mean, one of the things that certainly cropped up, we had a briefing during the week uh, with Anne Doherty, who's the chief executive of Cork City Council, and they were unveiling this, you know, redesign or reimagining of Cork going forward. And it was very interesting to hear them say that a lot of stuff had been fast-tracked. A lot of, you know, for instance, allowing traders to put furniture out on the streets, allowing people to do things that otherwise might have, required several weeks or even possible months of negotiation in terms of regulatory processes or planning or whatever. But the speed with which cities tried to adapt to the challenges posed by COVID, I think is very interesting and it's shown what can be achieved. And certainly the aim is to make Irish cities much more pleasant places to live, to exercise, to socialise and to shop. And I think that's a good thing for everyone. But Obviously, the challenge is going to be to achieve it in such a way as we minimize the fallout for people who, you know, have depended on certain forms of trade. And one simple example of that is every local authority that tries to promote, you know, greater pedestrianization, greater use of public transport, they're largely doing it through getting cars out of cities and that's and eliminating on-street car parking. Mm. But on-street car parking has been a very valuable source of income for councils all over Ireland and how they replace that form of income again is going to be a challenge going forward. Dr Brendan Walsh is a research officer at the ESRI and his recent report looked into how some essential workers are particularly vulnerable to the worst effects of COVID-19. This research uh, hoped to identify which workers in Ireland may have the highest risk to uh, more severe illness if they were to contract uh, COVID-19. And we examined three different uh, risk factors, which were uh, a worker having an underlying health condition, such as heart disease, um, asthma or diabetes, being an older worker, or being a worker who lived in a, a more deprived area. And overall, we find that it's many frontline workers in these essential occupations, which were at highest risk if they were to contract COVID-19. And in particular, many um, individuals who have worked throughout the COVID-19 pandemic such as road transport drivers, carers, cleaners, we find that it's these workers who seem to have higher than average risk due to their underlying characteristics. So 
we argue that when, when policies are introduced to try and protect the workplace during COVID-19, mm. they should, of course, be targeted at workers who may be you know, more exposed to the virus, in particular healthcare workers, but also potentially these higher risk workers who may suffer the most if they were to contract COVID-19. And is it also fair to assume that those working in essential occupations, even outside of the health sector, are also more susceptible in just catching the virus in general to begin with? Yes, yeah, so a previous um, piece of work by Paul Redmond, who was a co-author on this, found that about 22% of workers in Ireland are in essential occupations. And these essential occupations, while obviously healthcare workers are at the forefront of this, they do, the front line of, of, for workers does span both healthcare and non-healthcare. So, for example, outside of healthcare, we find that you know, road transport drivers in particular seem to have a high risk of a, a severe outcome if they were to contract a virus. So when I, when I say road transport drivers, I mean you know, bus Mm. or taxi drivers or, pan, or van transport drivers. And they tend to have higher rates of underlying health conditions. They're older on average, and it does put them in a more vulnerable position against the virus. And we've also tried to lean on some evidence from other countries here. And there's, there's good evidence from England and Wales that has found that, you know, road transport drivers are also disproportionately have, you know, higher mortality. So measures to, to mitigate risk for, for drivers, such as, you know, contactless payments, perspex barriers, especially when they're dealing with the public, you know, I think are a very good opportunity. And who do we know is responsible for making these working conditions safe? Is it a relationship between the state and private entities as well? Or how is that going to be managed going forward? I think that there needs to be, you know, an established relationship between the state and, and employers, like you state. I think the, the Return to Work Safety Protocol, which was published by the Health and Safety Authority and a number of different departments, it does outline measures to support employers and workers in trying to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in the workplace. Um, but it's important that protocols such as this are regularly updated as more information becomes available on occupational risk and you know, more effective protective measures are potentially identified. On the other end of the scale, what occupations would have the lowest percentage of workers with COVID vulnerable chronic illnesses? Well, one, one group that kind of stood out a bit, especially when it comes to the, the current uh, news, is teaching. So we find that on average, say, teachers and educational professionals were not found to be one of the higher risk groups in general. But even when, when you think of one of these groups, there's still quite, um, there'll be a certain proportion of workers who will have some type of risk. So, for example, teachers seem to be, you know, middle of the road when it comes to risk. But you still have 15% of teachers who, who report a, a COVID-19 vulnerable chronic illness instance, or chronic illness, for instance. So even when, because this looked across different occupations, it's still important for employers and the employees themselves, if they are able to identify high risk workers, even in occupations which may not necessarily be high risk themselves. I think that's very important. And whatever priorities um, and precautions could be brought in in individual circumstances is also important. Part of your research linked living within a deprived region as a risk area against COVID. And I think a lot of the narrative around COVID initially was that it was some sort of kind of socioeconomic leveler and it affects everyone equally. But that's obviously not the case. But why in particular does living within a deprived region create more risk for someone? Well, it, there's a, there will be um, a number of reasons for this, but w- we do think it's clear, especially from, you know, evidence from the UK and from the United States that, you know, many workers in essential occupations do live in more deprived areas. Um, and because of this, they do have, you know, higher rates of COVID-19 and also potentially poor outcomes from, from the illness. And in our research here, we did show that there are quite large differences across occupations when it comes to workers living in, in more deprived areas. So, for example, over a quarter of all cleaners, security workers, drivers and care workers live in a deprived area. 
And I, I think in general, the, the COVID-19 crisis has highlighted that many of the occupations which we know are now required to, to run the health system, run the economy, they tend to be in lower paying, often less secure mm. um, jobs. And often these workers themselves live in poorer or more deprived neighbourhoods. And I think the, the COVID-19 crisis has highlighted that. Yesterday, we learned that Ireland had its largest daily increase of the virus in quite some time. And part of that was attributed to an outbreak in a factory setting in Kildare in which 18 people contracted the virus. Has anyone mastered how to keep workers in these type of areas? So factory settings where it's high density within the actual factory itself. Has anyone came to a conclusion on how this can be done safely? There's definitely national policies such as the return to work safely protocol, which you know outlines measures which could be introduced. But again, you know, as we know, workplaces will differ, even from factory to factory, they will differ quite a lot. I, I think one thing that could be improved upon quite a bit, which could, I suppose, help alleviate some of these um, issues is improving the data that we actually capture on COVID-19 in the workplace. And I think this should be prioritised. So currently, apart from information on healthcare workers and, you know, and also the information which is released in, on the, in the Monday and the Thursday mm. um, conferences, Little is actually known about the number of COVID-19 cases across occupations. And if you had improved data to understand the occupations which are most at risk to the illness, which do see um, outbreaks in, at a particular point in time, it would give greater insights both to policymakers, to employers and to employees to enact you know, preventive measures and also respond more quickly to these localised workplace outbreaks. And what out of the research was most surprising for you when gathering the data afterwards? I think the most surprising to me was, there was when we speak to you know when we think about the group which has been impacted the worker group that has been impacted most by COVID-19 it's definitely healthcare workers you know they've been by far the group of workers which would be most vulnerable who have been most exposed to the virus and um, like they account for you know over a third of all confirmed cases of COVID-19 mm-hmm. in Ireland to date but what is interesting is that you know not all healthcare workers are the same so in this research we were actually able to examine different occupations within healthcare workers. So we could examine nurses, doctors, porters, carers separately. And we find that it's those in the caring profession. So these could be a home carer or a carer within a nursing home mm. that have the highest risk of COVID-19 amongst all healthcare workers. They you know quite high rates of underlying health conditions. They tend to be older and they also tend to live in more deprived areas. And just going back to the international research again, um, there is good evidence from other countries that carers dis- have disproportionate high mortality as well, at the, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. So from a policy point of view and from the employer's point of view, ensuring that carers especially have access to protection such as, you know, personal protective equipment should be of top priority, both within, you know, the workplace, but also when they're caring for people within their own home. That was episode 38 of Viral COVID-19. I'd like to thank both Brendan and Ralph for joining me on today's podcast. We will be back next week with more news and info on Ireland's response to the COVID-19 outbreak. I'm Ian Doyle. I'll talk to you then. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 